welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. On this show, we break down some of the most controversial, complex, and even polarizing topics facing our society. We use honest, good faith analysis backed by research to form our conclusions, and we promise to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and personal biases, and they will show up sometimes. But the goal of this show isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics and present the most truthful information available so that we can discuss and address these issues in a thoughtful, beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope that you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Let's get to it. In uh, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? In August of last year, August 2022, a search turned up some 300 classified documents stored in former President Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. I'm sure this is your first time hearing about it. Never heard about it. I know, crazy. A flurry of conversation, speculation, and denial followed. We'll get into some more specifics on that. And many of us were a bit flabbergasted at the audacity of the situation. That is true. I am one of us. I was flabbergasted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in January of this year, 2023, outlets began reporting that classified documents had been found at the Penn Biden Center, presumably from Biden's time as vice president. Again conversation and speculation, even comparison and finger pointing. And then just as the proverbial world was debating the differences between the two situations, reports surfaced that classified documents had also been found at Mike Pence's home in Indiana. Yeah. And at that point, I think is when I texted John saying, it cannot possibly be that easy to misplace classified documents, can it? Like what the heck is going on? Why is this all happening at one time? Um, and as you can imagine, the answer was a very cagey, international man of mystery style. It's complicated. Um, and if you've been listening to this podcast for any time at all, you know that those are magic words of sorts around here, transforming a conversation into an episode topic. So this week, we are here to break down the situation just a little bit more and discuss how this might have happened. Uh, the diff- obviously, like we say how it might have happened because we don't know how exactly it happened. And then we'll talk about the differences between the situations and how we can know who might have committed an actual crime. Now, if all of this sounds a little like deja vu, we get it. We did cover this topic fairly generally back in September in our From the Headlines episode on the Espionage Act. And while we spent most of that episode talking about the Espionage Act itself, why it was created, why it's actually kind of controversial, some notable cases that were prosecuted under the act, um, we did talk about how it might apply to Donald Trump in light of the discoveries at Mar-a-Lago. However, it's been a few months and there's new information to add in there. 
we're also going to focus more on the document situation this time. And sure, there may be a little overlap, but we promise we'll keep that to a minimum, hopefully. Right. Okay, so I, I think we have to start the whole conversation with my original question. How exactly does something like this happen? All right, so as we get into this, I think um, I think it pertinent to get real about the nature of classified materials and how and why things actually become classified. Now, broadly speaking, the US government classifies information to protect national security interests, but that's kind of a no-brainer, right? Like, it's like saying we eat chocolate because it's chocolate, duh. Practically, this refers to information that this, that might cause damage to the United States or its interests domestic and abroad. So more commonly, or most commonly, people imagine that this means information about like military plans and weapon systems and intelligence activities and diplomatic communications or aliens. And yeah, information in all of those categories can be and is classified, even information about aliens. But there's also a world of mundane minutiae that gets classified. Things like employee reviews or menus or administrative things like ordering office supplies. Um, I found an old declassified document about people taking home the Coke bottles from the vending machine um, in the 1960s, like, and it had to be declassified right? Classified information isn't all sexy and mysterious all of the time. In fact, probably, what, 90% of the time, it's really just boring. I mean, you can yeah. you can go online and read some old declassified documents and, and guarantee you your disappointment will be immeasurable and your day will be ruined. It's, it is painful, really, honestly. It is painful. Really quick, there are three levels of classification. They are top secret, secret, and confidential. Allow me, allow us to define these in order of ascending intrigue, mystery, and just film noir sexiness. So, which is a, a reliable metric that we should all use. Um, so confidential information, that level of classification is the least intriguing or mysterious. There is zero sexy here. Um, this information, uh, it could reasonably be expected to cause damage to national security should it be disclosed without authorization. But we're talking things that might cause like a diplomat to be embarrassed if it became public or dinner plans you don't want to like reveal the time and place that important people are going to be eating or maybe maybe information about like generic law enforcement activities or plans um, but by and large you will finish reading something classified as confidential and go okay but why was this classified <laughs> okay so beyond that, we'd move up to level two, and that is secret information. Somewhat intriguing, sufficiently mysterious. This is girl next door or shirtless guy in typically non-shirtless places, but you're not mad about it. Sexy. This one naturally turns up the heat just a little bit. Uh, this information could cause some serious damage to national security if it's disclosed without authorization. This is the level where you'll be more likely to find information about military plans or intelligence activities, vulnerabilities in infrastructure, diplomatic communication, and so on. 
But still, seriously, the bulk of this information will be relatively boring to the average reader. You'll walk away going, ah, that was something. I'm not sure what, but it was something. And then there's top secret information. Much intriguing. Such mysterious. Wow. Um, this is like Femme Fatale or Pool Boy or Magic Mike or Hugh Jackman in a comfy knit sweater with the sleeves rolled up slightly, offering you a warm confection and cozy drink, telling you to relax. Dinner is almost ready and the kids are doing their homework quietly. Tell me about your day. Levels of sexy. This is, <laughs> this is what you're looking for. The real secrets, like classified, classified. Um, this is the information that could reasonably be expected to cause exceptionally grave damage to national security. And I love this definition. That's the actual definition. Exceptionally grave damage to national security. The U.S. government isn't really prone to using flowery or descriptive language or hyperbole, um, but exceptionally grave always strikes me as so dramatic. And I don't know why. I think it's just like, the use of the word grave, yes. but uh, but yeah, that's it. Now, to be fair, that's not an inaccurate description either. Like this is where you're going to find information about highly sensitive military or intelligence operations, you know, like planning to take down the leader of a terrorist organization or something like that, um, or sensitive foreign government activities or documents about the US nuclear program. Like you'll finish reading that and you'll probably say, I have no idea what this is about, but it sounds serious. And I mean, it's designed like that on purpose. And then, and then there's above top secret. Yeah, you've seen it in every tacky Hollywood movie ever. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't exist. Like really, top secret, top secret is where it ends. And that's why it's top secret. Now there are additional controls that can be added to the classification and they further restrict who can access the information, but they aren't increasing the classification level at all. It's just like more narrowly defining it. Um, so yeah, I will say, I will say one of my favorite things that I've ever learned is that in NATO, their maximum level of classification is called cosmic top secret, and that makes me very happy. That's kick ass. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. We need to get a cosmic top secret level. Somebody needs to start a change.org petition. I'm sure that the United States government will listen to us if we do that. Okay. So now we know the levels who determines whether information is classified and at what given level well here's the thing there are only a handful of people who are able to take information and say this is top secret these people have original classification authority and when i say a handful i mean like literally the president the vice president some agency heads and officials designated by the president and then maybe a very few officials who have been given this authority by one of those aforementioned people. Like, it's a real small number of people. Everybody else working with classified information has what is known as derivative authority. They can't give any information a new classification directly. They can only work in fairly narrowly defined bands of authority to maintain the classification levels that are already defined 
by those original classification authorities. Confusing? I mean, basically what it means is that I can't just grab a piece of information and go, uh, this is secret now because I said so. That's, that's really all that matters. If you are one of the massive majority of people working with classified information without original classification authority, you basically have to use a classification guide um, to match the information you have to like this, the closest category in the guide and use that to determine the classification level of what you have. Now, trying to find where your piece of information fits into the guide is, we'll just say it isn't easy, um, mainly because I don't want to lose my job by talking about it too much. That's fair. So what happens when you're not quite sure uh, what level the information you're handling is classified at um, is that you, you, you obviously look it up and spend literal hours uh, sometimes needed to classify it correctly. That's clearly what happens. Um, you definitely don't just slap secret on it and toss it on the pile and move on to the next piece of work that's probably due five days ago, but you just managed to dig out to this point. I'll never tell. I'll never tell what that which one of those is true. No, never. Mm -mm. I don't think any of us have any idea. No. Now, the same executive order, that is Executive Order 13526, that determines what the classification levels are, also describes who has access to that information and how it must be handled. The key elements of the process for moving classified information from person to person include... Number one, security clearance. Individuals who will be handling classified information must have the appropriate security clearance. This requires a background investigation to verify their suitability for access to classified information. They don't mess around. Yeah, they also have need to know. I'm sure you've heard of this. Only individuals with a need to know the information are authorized to receive it. That simple. This is determined by the original classification authority, and it takes into account the individual's official duties and responsibilities. Um, so just because somebody is cleared to access, for example, top secret information, it doesn't mean that they need to know top secret information. The scientists working on the nuclear power plants probably don't need to know anything about the movements of, say, the Navy's Seventh Fleet. Even if they had next month's plans in their hands, they'd be obligated not to read it because they just don't need to know. And honestly, I find a lot of people honor this because with knowledge comes the responsibility of having that knowledge. And the more you know, the more likely you are to be held responsible if something goes sideways. And nobody wants to be dragged up in front of Congress to answer questions. Yeah, especially about stuff that lives in those files but i will say like this was kind of one of the biggest revelations for me in learning all about this stuff in the last couple of years is that you always see in movies anybody with top secret clearance walking into anywhere and asking for any file they want and just being handed it and like it just doesn't it doesn't work like that you also see a lot of people carrying cell phones around um <laughs> in you know, the same places where people keep classified information. That ain't happening either, yeah, people. Yeah, that's fair. That is fair. Another key element to this process is information marking. Classified information must be marked with the appropriate level of classification, the date and the reason for classification, and 
the identity of the original classification authority. Remember, there's only a handful of people whose names can be on that. There's also the practice of using security containers. Now, classified information must be stored in secure containers or rooms when not in use, and access to these containers or rooms must be strictly controlled. So please, please remember <laughs> this one as we talk about this. Storing classified information correctly is a big deal. It's one of the most consistent things I see stressed in classified environments. Is the classified in the safe? Is the safe locked? Have you double checked? Not everyone is allowed to have access to any given safe. And if you don't have access, but you need something in a safe and the person or people who don't have access or who do have access, excuse me, if they're not around, you wait. End of story. <laughs> like that's how it works. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Another big deal is transmission. Classified information must be transmitted in a secure manner using approved methods such as encrypted email or secure file transfer protocols. This is also incredibly important and stressed all the time. Chain of custody for classified information is tracked through a combination of physical and electronic means. Chain of custody is tracked to protect the classified information from unauthorized access and this is enabled through ensuring that the proper authority can audit the chain of custody. It's like evidence in a court case, right? Like everybody's gotta sign off when they see it. Physical tracking involves maintaining a record of who has taken possession of the classified information, where it has been stored, and who has access to it. This usually is accomplished through the use of security containers, like we just talked about, controlled access logs, and distributing keys to access the classified sparingly. Electronic tracking, as the name implies, involves maintaining an electronic record of who has access to the classified information and when. This usually happens in the background through the use of security software that can log and track who accessed a given document. You know, kind of like your browser history, but for state secrets. You cannot turn cookies off on those. You cannot. <laughs> in addition, classified information may be assigned a unique identifier, such as a classification management number or a document control number to assist in tracking its chain of custody. And then finally, there's this the concept of what happens when something goes wrong. These are called security incidents. And all security incidents, such as the loss or unauthorized disclosure of classified information, must be promptly reported and investigated. This includes discovering that you have classified in your backpack that you accidentally took home or in your private residence. And like this, honestly, it happens not infrequently. I'm not going to say it's super duper common, but like it's common enough that just like having taken home classified information probably isn't going to get you like fired if you just report it and say, hey, I accidentally took this home. Yeah. Right. It's like, okay, we're gonna put that in your record and have a good day. This is one of those things that in my experience, people don't just like, they don't mess with it. If you lose classified or accidentally take it home or otherwise mishandle it, you own up to that and like real quick like, because the consequences for failing to take appropriate measures can be far too serious. And of course there are, unfortunately, exceptions to every rule like Edward Snowden. And you will always find someone who thinks that the rules don't apply to them. And whatever reason they give, a lot of times they think that they're justified. 
Um, sometimes they're just stealing secrets because they want money, <laughs> you know, but you will always find those people. And that kind of brings me, I didn't write this part down because I got too sassy uh, talking about how we control uh, classified information, but that kind of brings me to one of the points that I wanted to make that I hear brought up all the time talking about Trump and Pence and Biden and how could they do this and like it's crazy and how do we know that they had classified or how much is missing? It's controlled like crazy. I've heard people say wild things like we should have a chain of custody for handling classified and I like every time I'm like we do. Like there's a standard procedure for all of this. You have to sign this, you have to hand it to that. You have to like, there are like specific ways that you have to transport it. Like it's, it's, it's the government people. Do you really think, do you really think that they didn't see an opportunity to create an overly burdensome and bureaucratic process and go, nah. Like you think that that's what they did? <laughs> nah. So. How this happens is that people either intentionally take information home, which we have seen, or accidentally take it home and are too afraid, for whatever reason, to report their indiscretion, for lack of a better term. That's how you get this. Uh, I know that there was one guy who was recently discovered with something like 50,000 classified documents at home. Not that we, not that he was doing anything with it. It's just he took them home and stored them. What? I have no idea why. That's crazy. That is just it's huge. It's, it's ridiculous. Okay, but there is something really interesting that I learned researching this episode that I didn't even occur to me before, but it makes logical sense. Like if, let's say, for example, you are reading a piece of classified information, you're reading a document, you're doing something, and you are writing in a notebook like you're taking notes, those notes then are considered classified at the same level as the information that you were reading. So yeah. like when I think about that and how often I'll just pull out my notebook or pull out my phone and take notes on something, it I can see how you could end up with like these kind of random and sporadic pieces of, of classified information. And I mean, and that's called derivative. That's how the derivative classification process works is if I take information from source A, which is classified at secret and source B, which is classified at top secret, for example, and I combine that into one product, that product then becomes like it retains the classification of the highest piece of information that was dumped into it. So then it becomes top secret because you always like you classify up you don't mm -hmm. want to underclassify something you don't want to overclassify something either it's arguably worse um but you definitely you don't want to underclassify it so yeah lots of classified notebooks out there you also don't want to know how many pieces of paper get just randomly shredded or un not randomly shredded just get shredded because you took a single note on them and then you need to dispose of it properly it's, it's a lot it's a lot. So, Robin has dipped to go get a drink of water, I'm assuming. So, I, in the interest of time, shall continue. Because we want to talk about how these situations um, with Trump and Biden and Pence, um, how they 
differ and where they're similar. Um, so let's do a quick breakdown of the current state of play in the ongoing saga of classified information um, being found in the private residences and offices of Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and Mike Pence. The quick and dirty of it is that roughly 300 documents classified up to the top secret level were found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, as we said at the top. It's unclear how many documents were discovered at Biden's home and offices, but so far it looks to be between 20 and 30 total. Pence is in a similar boat with roughly 20 documents being recovered from his private spaces. So now none of these documents were stored appropriately. I just want to make that clear. Uh, we don't need to get into the intricacies of where specifically what documents were found. Just suffice it to say, it's not good. It is worth pointing out that upon discovery of the classified material in November 2022, Biden's attorneys immediately alerted the White House Counsel's Office, which notified the National Archives and Records Administration, Administration uh, NARA or NARA, um, which took custody of the documents the next day. They then cooperated with authorities to examine other locations for further classified information. And similarly, Pence's attorneys notified the authorities when they discovered classified documents in January 2023, and then cooperated with authorities to search for any additional classified in Pence's personal spaces. Trump's saga, on the other hand, is a bit more complex. In December 2021, 15 boxes of presidential records containing classified material were found at Mar-a-Lago and transferred to the NARA. Several months later, the FBI and the Justice Department conducted a search at Mar-a-Lago and retrieved 33 boxes of records. Given the volume of documents discovered, the archives informed Trump's team that the documents would be handed over to the intelligence community for a review, which is standard practice used to assess the potential damage that could have been done by the incorrect storage. But Trump's team asked for and was granted a temporary delay. They tried to get a second delay, but that one was denied. The FBI later learned that Trump may have more documents and therefore issued a subpoena for them. Trump's lawyers turned over a packet of 38 classified documents and showed the FBI a storage room where the documents had been held, but refused to allow the FBI to inspect the room further. The FBI later discovered that Trump had not fully complied with the subpoena and still even had more classified documents. This time, they obtained a search warrant for Mar-a-Lago and found over 100 confidential secret and top secret documents in the storage room and in Trump's office. Trump attempted to slow the investigation by asking for a special master to review the documents and demanded their return, claiming that they were his personal property and had been declassified. Side note, this led to a frankly hilarious discussion about declassification by Trump just yelling that the documents were declassified, I guess. Uh, pro tip, that is not at all how the declassification process works. And then two more classified documents were found in a Florida storage facility used by Trump near Mar-a-Lago and were turned over to the FBI. So, like, there's a real big difference. Kinda. Kinda. I always picture Trump uh, doing, like, the Michael Scott, I declare bankruptcy thing <laughs> with the classified. I declare declassified. Just, no. No. Um... <laughs> 
So listen, two of these people did the right thing. One of them didn't. It's that simple. Like it really doesn't, it's just not worth equivocating over this. Biden and Pence should not have classified documents stored in their personal spaces. But they did what they were supposed to do. They reported them and they worked with authorities to find any other documents that may have been missed. Trump resisted turning over the documents at every turn, didn't cooperate with the authorities, and obstructed the investigation. That's like, period, point blank, that's, that's what happened. So, given the differences in these three situations, how can we know who might actually be in hot water over these documents? What's the standard for knowing whether or not an actual crime was committed? Well, this is where we get to refer back to 18 U.S.C. 793, the Espionage Act. I know, we're all so excited. Federal laws just make for such engaging reading. But seriously, we'll try to keep it as accessible as possible here. And before we move on, huge shout out to Legal Eagle over on YouTube, whose video, Biden's Classified Docs Are Bad, was part of what inspired us to make this episode and provided an extra layer of understanding to the layers of ifs and thens that always come with federal laws, which is it's just a lot. It's just a lot. Okay, so uh, I think that the way to open this conversation is probably with some vocabulary. Um, I love it. I love vocabulary. Yes. Everybody loves vocabulary. Yeah, I think it'll be helpful to keep these things in mind when we move into the actual parameters of the law. That's true, especially because like sometimes definitions of a common word when used in law are not what you think it is. Exactly. So first up, let's talk about NDI, aka National Defense Information. The category of NDI includes information relating to essential defense, industrial, and military emergency energy requirements relative to the national safety, welfare, and economy. Yeah. Specifically, information that could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation. Within the scope of the Espionage Act, that information also excuse me, carries an additional important qualifier. It must be, quote, closely held, uh, which has been defined by precedent to basically mean, quote, actively withheld from the public. Interesting side note. Classification is considered circumstantial evidence that information is closely held. It is one of the factors used to determine whether something falls into the category of NDI, but it's not the primary qualifier. That is interesting. So next, we need to define the word willfully. This is one of those words that has a common English definition that is slightly different here in the law. A lot of the conversation about whether or not these presidents and vice presidents may have committed a crime under the Espionage Act has to do with whether or not they did what they did or uh, didn't do willfully. In this context, that means that they behaved this way with an intent to deceive or to withhold information. It has to be more than an honest mistake. There has to be an underhanded motive to the action or inaction. And then finally, we've got to talk about gross negligence. Okay, we probably need to start by talking about regular negligence uh, in a criminal context. When someone is charged with criminal negligence, um, the prosecution is making the case that the person ignored uh, a known or obvious risk 
to the safety of others and engaged in behavior that is significantly different than what an ordinary person would do in a similar circumstance. So like you just didn't put out the stroller that was on fire. Uh, right. This would be turning, this would be like turning left at a red light or firing a celebratory shot into the air or dropping a cigarette, cigarette butt in into dry grass. I swear my mouth is just deciding not to work anymore. It has nothing to do with the glass of white wine that I have been drinking. When we're talking about criminal liability relating to NDI under the Espionage Act, the standard is raised a bit higher to gross negligence. Now, there's not one uniform definition of gross negligence that has been applied across the board, but the general consensus is that the person must clearly understand what the consequences of their behavior could be and still display a wanton or reckless disregard for the reasonable standard of action. So outside of a national security context, this might be something like leaving a loaded firearm out in the presence of a child or driving the wrong way down a highway at high speeds. When we're talking about NDI, however, it means fully understanding the contents and purpose of a document and choosing to handle it in a way that could cause significant danger to the United States or personnel representing it in that sensitive context, like leaving it out on a coffee table, unattended, in a house full of foreign guests, or something like that. Or, you know, on a bar in a Starbucks in the middle of DC. Just spitballing here. Um, so, okay. I think we are ready to move into the flow chart of espionage trademark, by which we will determine if these esteemed uh, leaders could have done real crime with these pesky papers. We'll start at the top and work our way through each of the branches and um, probably, maybe, if you ask real nice, make a nice version of it and post it to a social of ours, probably Instagram, because why the hell not? Yes, why the hell not? Um, but one thing we want to prime you uh, to notice is that as we move through the various contingencies is that having the documents, just possessing them, even in a not so approved location, isn't really the most important factor in the situation. What matters the most is what happens once the documents are discovered. Very important disclaimer. Neither of us are lawyers, though we did learn this information from people who are lawyers. And this is absolutely not legal advice or probably anything that you should base an actual court case on. We're pretty confident that it's good enough to impress your friends and colleagues, but uh, that's about all that we're willing to assert here. And also, your nerdy friends and colleagues, yeah, let's be yeah, honest yeah. here. Yes. Your friends and colleagues that are like Robin and I. <laughs> right, right. The people who you might actually get into a conversation about this stuff with. Okay, so we're at the top of our flowchart here. First question, most essential question. Did the president or vice president have lawful possession of the NDI? Okay, so we've already covered who is allowed to possess these kinds of documents, when and why, so we won't rehash that. This question really doesn't establish whether or not the person who has the goods did anything illegal, uh, but the answer to this question kind of sets everything else up. So for this part of the conversation, we're going to proceed as though the answer to that question is no. They did not have lawful possession. For some reason, he should not have had 
those documents. Like we said a minute ago, this isn't an ideal situation to be in, but it's not inherently a big deal. But we do have some follow-up questions that we need to ask. So let's start with, did he willfully attempt or to, did he attempt to or successfully communicate, deliver, transmit, or any other synonym for share it with someone who isn't entitled to have it? And, well, you'll notice that willfully shows up in the conversation right away here. Right from the jump, the question isn't even, did anyone who shouldn't see it, see it? The question is, did you share it with an ineligible person on purpose? So to even begin to establish whether or not a crime occurred, we have to tease out whether or not the holder meant to share the information. If the answer is yes, well, then we can just stop right right there. We're firmly in crime territory. That is, that is literal espionage. <laughs> and we should make it clear that we're not just out here taking folks' words on their intentions. This is the whole purpose of investigating, of appointing special counsel, all of that. The Department of Justice is doing their due diligence to determine if everyone's assertions line up. That's one reason that the inconsistencies in Trump's stories are concerning. Yes. Now, if the answer is no, that they didn't intentionally show it to someone who shouldn't see it, then we have another question to answer. Did he willfully retain and fail to deliver the information to someone who does have legal authority to at least possess it? Again, here's willfully, and it's coming in clutch with the reason why Mike Pence and Joe Biden likely aren't guilty of any actual crimes, regardless of when those documents entered work-from-home status. It would appear that neither of them were consciously aware that the documents were where they were, and they both, again apparently, voluntarily notified and handed the documents over to the appropriate authorities. It all comes down to the deliberate intent to hold on to that paperwork. This isn't a great situation to be in, but it's probably not criminal. Now, if the answer is yes, it might be crime. I mean, we can't say for sure without investigation, but uh, looks like we're back in the no-no zone if you did willfully retain and fail to deliver that information to someone who does have legal authority to at least possess it. I'm looking at you, sir. Yeah. Mr. Trump. So now we go back to the top. We're going to ask our initial question again. Did the president or vice president have lawful possession of the NDI? But on this side of the chart, the answer is yes, they did have lawful possession. So we're going to move straight on to the next question, which sounds almost exactly like the first branch on the other side. Did he willfully share it with someone who shouldn't have it? If the answer is no, again, we proceed to the next question. All of the same factors are at play here. Okay. So then we ask, did he willfully retain it or refuse to give it to a government employee entitled to receive it? The answer is no. That's not awesome. That's probably not a crime. But if the answer is yes, then things are not looking great for his not a crook status. In fact, we are inching much closer to BFD, that's short for big fucking deal, than any of the other options so far. This is where we get to ask our little side question. Um, where the gross negligence standard comes in. So regardless of either of those answers, was the president or vice president grossly negligent in his behavior 
allowing the information to be re removed from its proper place of custody or to be delivered to anyone who shouldn't have access to it or to be lost, stolen, abstracted, or destroyed. Or did he have knowledge that the NDI had been illegally removed from its proper place of custody and failed to make a report to his senior officer or, you know, since we're talking about presidents here, any other relevant officer because he is the senior the senior officer, officer. Um, yeah and so then if the answer to either of these is yes then there are grounds for indictment there's crime possibly regardless of whether or not the president or vice president took shared or retained the information willfully like if he was just super lazy made a real big mistake and let all this stuff happen could still be a crime now, up until this point, we've kind of answered all the, well, it might or it might not be a crime things. Like all of these answers so far, are, it depends. But let's back up just a little bit because we have to ask the big hairy question here. What if he did willfully attempt to or successfully communicate, deliver, transmit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with somebody who is not supposed to have it? Well, that's easy. That's a crime. That's a crime. <laughs> Proceed to jail for about 10 years and do not pass go. Do not collect $200. We will be watching your bank accounts. Don't let the cell door hit you on the way in. In fact, he would likely be on the hook for a hefty fine as well. But wait a minute. <laughs> like, how is the penalty for this only a fine and up to 10 years in the Hooskow? Oh, word nerd interjection. Because I was writing this and I was like, I wrote Hooskow. And then I was like, where does that even come from? The term Hooskow, which you may or may not have heard in your grandpa's favorite Chris Christopherson Western, likely comes from the English mispronunciation of the Spanish word Juzgado, which means court or tribunal. You're welcome. And now back to our regular programming. And hello and welcome back to the complexities of U.S. law. There are actually a few different statues that can be applied when NDI is actually leaked and they carry a variety of different penalties. And then there's 18 USC 794, which deals specifically with the transmission of national security information to an enemy of the United States during a time of quote unquote war. The penalties there include life in prison or even death if the information causes the death of a U.S. asset. Yeah. So, surprise, surprise, it's not always as simple as our flowchart of espionage TM makes it sound. Um, but in these cases, we don't really have reason to believe that these documents caused that level of repercussion, or in Pence and Biden's case, did more than collect a bunch of dust. So if for some reason more information surfaces that's more relevant to these other statutes that apply when NDI is actually leaked, then sure, we reserve our right to revisit this conversation. Yeah. Now I'll tell you what, what does concern me. If you'll recall earlier, early in the episode, um, we mentioned about the controls um, for handling classified information. And those included like keeping a log of who has access to the information, um, where the information went, you know, who accessed it, who could access it, where it was stored, all of that fun stuff. So what that means is there was a record kept somewhere that said, okay, these documents, you know, one through 300 are in the possession of the last known person to have them and then in the possession of Trump, right? So we know 
with a relative level of certainty, we know which documents Trump most likely should have in Mar-a-Lago. And we know which ones are missing from that. We need to know where those missing documents are. And that's what bothers me. And that's also what makes me think that there is, there's actually the real potential for criminal charges to come out of this. Um, because if we can you know, positively assert that Trump or his representatives had these documents in their possession at one point, and now they do not, and they did not fill out the appropriate paperwork to document the transmission of those documents to the next holder, whoever that is, it does not matter if they were supposed to have that information, if they were legally allowed to have that information, whatever, at this point in time, they have now lost that information and they didn't report it. And that can cause serious damage to the United States. And some of the, based on the open reporting that I've seen, like some of the the documents contain some very, very, very sensitive classified information. Yeah. Like the fact that there were top secret documents included in and of itself, not great, not great. Yeah. So that's what worries me. Yeah, no, that's incredibly concerning. And the idea that like, just whole groups of documents would be missing completely um, is very concerning. Another thing that I've seen come up in context as we were researching this one is that there's kind of a greater conversation that's happening around this that suggests that like maybe we're overclassifying documents. Like maybe we have too much paperwork that is considered classified, that is considered protected and sensitive. Um, that doesn't actually need to be. So we're increasing the likelihood that someone could accidentally or um, mistakenly, without that kind of willful negative intention, abscond with documentation that is classified. And I think that's a really interesting conversation because, well, the United States government is very well known for its propensity to bureaucracy. And so this idea that there are memos out there that have to do with shopping lists and menus and coca-cola bottles that are considered classified like the reality of the situation is that classifying stuff is often a subjective exercise uh it is it's more subjective than it should be we would ultimately like things to be objectively classified at every turn right but even even if you only have derivative classification authority, if you're talking about something that's classified, but you're not specifically quoting anything in it that's classified, and you're talking in generalities, like do you classify it at the same level? I don't have the ability to legally downgrade that classification to something less than. Um, so a lot of people, instead of well, they don't know how to do anything but keep maintain yeah. you know, the classification that they are given. And so I would I would bet my bottom dollar that yes, <laughs> we are overclassifying a lot. Yeah. A lot. And that is on the theory that it is better to have classified something and not need to than to have needed to and, and not have done it. it. Yeah. As I said earlier, and this is a conversation for another time, but there are some serious problems with overclassifying information, some very legitimate concerns that does not make the discussion about whether or not stuff should be classified if you're uncertain 
uh, it does not make that discussion very easy to come to a, a conclusion because there are some unintended consequences of overclassifying that have some pretty serious side effects as well. No, it's so like it's it's super complex. And I guess like I should have expected it to be that complex, but at the same time, the way that it is presented to the average American is way more simplified than that. So I think it's yeah. it's really important to have this kind of context to understand like literally how could this have happened? Yeah. And I will tell you, at the end of the day, most likely we can use, I think it's is it Hanlon's razor, I think, um, never ascribed to malice what can be explained by ignorance. Yes. Um, something like that. I, th I think that's what it, I think that's the right term for it. I have a suspicion that for in two out of three cases here, most of this was done through ignorance. Yeah. And that in one out of three cases that shall not remain or that shall remain nameless, um, there is the potential, and that is all I'm saying, there's the potential that it wasn't entirely ignorance that yeah. caused this situation to develop. Yeah. <sighs> that is why it is always best, even though ignorance may be bliss, to endeavor to educate yourself out of it. And if you would like a resource to help educate yourself out of ignorance, can I tell you about firesidebreakdowns.com? Yes, you can. All right. That is the website that Robin and I have created and designed and run. We didn't really run it. We just uploaded content to it for the last almost three years now. It's been a long time. Something like that. It's been a long time. We're getting old. Um, on that website, you can find literally all of our episodes. You can find our show notes whenever we publish it. When you go to our show notes, you can see all the sources that we use mm -hmm. to put an episode together. Um, I would encourage you to check out the show notes for this episode. There is some incredible information out there about how classified information is handled. Everything that we've talked about on this episode is publicly available knowledge, which I say to be very, very clear. <laughs> um, everything here is, is unclassified information that you can find. The executive order that we referenced earlier uh, was a heavy lifter for a lot of this episode. And so... I would, I would highly recommend checking it out. You can also find links to our socials on firesidebreakdowns.com as well as links to our Patreon. Uh, on our Patreon, you'll find exclusive bonus content. Bonus. Like, for example, Robert and I's discussion of Rihanna and the Super Bowl. I'm sorry, excuse me, the big game because I don't want to get sued by the NFL um uh, on our patreon uh, and it's just a little fun thing sometimes the bonus content is more information that we just couldn't shoehorn into an hour-long episode and sometimes it's uh absolute nonsense mm -hmm. it's a potpourri really it's always something except for the weeks where it's not something because we ran out of time either way good times you can th you can be a patron of ours for as little as one dollar a month that one dollar helps us pay for help so we can keep doing that because uh, we desperately, desperately need help. Yes. So, yeah, I think that's my my shameless plug, my awkward segue. Um, and now let's talk about some good, good news. Some good news. Good okay. news is Brave Bessie is getting a Barbie. And if that sounded like nonsense to you, don't worry. I'll explain. Okay, so background. Born in 1892, Bessie Coleman was the first black and Native American female aviator. 
the first black person to earn an international pilot's license, and the first black woman to stage a public flight. That's right, friends, it is Black History Month. Bessie Coleman was born poor in Texas, and her um, she and her mother made ends meet by picking cotton, even though she always had dreams of more. She actually wanted to go to college. Um, but she spent one semester in college and then learned that women in France had more rights than women in the United States, especially black women. So she saved her money, she learned French, and she sailed to France to become a pilot. On June 15, 1921, she received her international pilot's license. She returned to the United States shortly after and began amazing crowds with her amazing stunts, like flying figure eights and walking on the wings while her plane was in midair. That's how she earned the nickname Brave Bessie. She traveled the country speaking, teaching, and performing, and she even put her foot down and refused to perform for segregated crowds. And in many instances, the people staging the event actually acquiesced to her demand and had integrated crowds at the event because they wanted people to come and see her and earn the money. Bessie Coleman died in 1926 at the age of 34 in a plane accident but she left behind a legacy that inspired generations of black, Native American, and female pilots. And so now, Mattel, the makers of the iconic Barbie doll, have released a new doll to help celebrate Bessie's story and hopefully help more people discover it. I will say, until I came across this article, I had never heard of Bessie Coleman. Same. This is this is the first time I had heard her story. And that's a shame, because it's pretty dang cool. It is pretty dang cool. So, thanks, Barbie for teaching us a little bit more about black history. Thanks, Mattel. I feel gross saying it, but <laughs> it's pretty. They actually do some pretty good work with their, um, like their tribute dolls. Their dolls celebrating like stories and, and change makers and stuff like that. But yeah, there's a there's a lot, there, there are layers to the whole Barbie situation, but the work that they do with these kinds of dolls is, is really cool. And it does help get the story out to a lot of people. So I like that. I would like to say that, as the youth would say, that is very cash money of Mattel. Jesus. <laughs> as the youths would say. As the youths, as the youths would say. All right, that's it. This is getting out of hand here. Uh, we will be back in a period of time, not to exceed two weeks from now, in order to discuss with you something more entertaining or interesting or enlightening something that begins with the end um, yes and until that time thank you so much for being here with us thank you so much for being along for the ride we we love you very much is it thursday no wait that's not our that's the wrong it's podcast wrong um, podcast you're just trying to get us we to. sign off with they would not they would not take care of each other